Well, that is, uh, sets up our, our question for tonight. We're looking at the top questions that, that we all have, really, about Jesus, about the Bible, about faith, about Christianity. And um, tonight we're talking about the Bible, and we're talking about can we, can we trust the Bible? This is, this is our question for tonight. Can I trust the Bible? And it's a, it's a question that's really important. It's a question that's often talked about, especially around this time, around Easter time. You'll start to see uh, all sorts of uh, TV specials, and you'll, you'll start to see uh, news cover magazines as we get close to Easter, that because it's just it's good business to talk about the Bible, Newsweek magazine, uh, a few months ago, they did, they did a cover story about the Bible, and it I mean, doubled their sales of what they normally sell. I mean, it's just a, it's a hot button issue to be able to talk about the Bible. And it's a really important issue. I mean, when we talk about all the different types of questions that we have about Jesus and the Bible and Christianity, the question of can I trust the Bible is, is maybe in some ways the most important question. Because it's the issue kind of underneath all issues. I mean, if you, if you can't trust what the Bible says, then you don't really know anything about Jesus, and you don't really know anything about at least the Christian God. I mean, you, you can't really, if, if you can't trust the Bible, then our ideas about God are just our own ideas. I mean, as far as it relates to Christianity. So, in many ways, this is the issue underneath all issues. Um, so, when we talk about things like, is Jesus the only way, or why does a good God allow suffering, or we talk about things like, how has the church done so much hypocritical things, and I mean, all these types of things that we've spent the last several weeks looking at, in all of them, we've opened up the Bible and said, here's the answers that the Bible gives. But if we can't trust the Bible, then it doesn't, it doesn't really matter what answers the Bible gives. So, this is in many ways the issue underneath all the issues. In many ways, it's the question underneath all the questions, because if the Bible's a lie or just a myth or a hoax, then it doesn't really matter. We have to kind of rethink everything else. But if it is true, I mean, if we can trust the Bible, then that, then that affects everything, if you're a Christian or not a Christian. I mean, if, if, we, if we can come to a conclusion and say, we can trust the Bible, then, I mean, that really changes how we look at life. It should change how we look at life if we can trust the Bible. So, I mean, can we? Can we trust the Bible? Because you've got this book, and really it's not a book. I mean, this is 66 different books written by multiple authors over hundreds and hundreds of years, different kinds of authors, people that were People that were farmers and people that were in prison, people that were kings, people that were fishermen, people that were, I mean, all, I mean, all sorts of different kinds of people in different regions, in different places over many, 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 many years. I mean, can we trust this book? That, that's a really important question. I mean, it's huge. And tonight, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about that question. Can I trust the Bible? And our scope, just so you know, has to be limited. I mean, I don't want it to be limited. I, I would love to talk to you for hours and hours and hours. But, I mean, to answer the question, can we trust the Bible, the scope really has to be limited. Because there's many different questions that probably many of you have and many different types of things that we could talk about. I mean, if we were to talk about anything, can you trust this of any sort of topic, there's all sorts of avenues that we could take, right? But our scope has to be limited tonight. And if you've got more questions, I'd be happy to grab a cup of coffee with you or, or just talk with you more or send you resources to look at because there's all sorts of types of things that we could approach this question. But tonight, our scope's going to be limited. And here's, here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at two witnesses 
to why I believe we can trust the Bible. And the first is Jesus, and the first is experience. And, and here's what I mean. I want you to think about um, maybe some of you have been to counseling, whether that's marriage counseling or just some sort of other type of counselor. And if you were to ask the question, can I trust this counselor? If you were to ask that question, how, how would you know that you could trust a particular counselor? I mean, one of those ways that you would know if you could trust a particular counselor would be you would do your research and find out, okay, what kind of degrees do they have? Um, how long have they been in business? Where are their degrees from? Is it from University of Phoenix or is it from somewhere that's uh, maybe a little more reputable, um, at least in the counseling field? No offense if you're from the University of Phoenix. I probably shouldn't have said that. Um, <laughs> oh, man. A lot of times I say things thinking no one, you know, but it's probably the founder of the University of Phoenix is in here tonight. Welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Um, so, I mean, it's, you would, if you were, if you're going to say, can I trust this counselor? That would be one approach, right? Is to look at kind of the facts. What, what kind of schools has this person been to? What kind of um, experience do they have? What's their track record? That would be kind of one way to approach, can I trust this counselor? But another way to approach, can I trust this counselor would just be to go to it. And to say, does it work? Am I benefiting? I mean, is it, am I experiencing something where I go, this works? And I don't, I don't know if there's degrees on the walls. I don't know where they're from. I don't know what, what, if, uh, if they've been recommended by somebody else, but it works. I'm experiencing. I know I can trust them because something's happening here. So, I mean, that, that's kind of how I want to approach this is first looking at Jesus. Because if Jesus, I mean, if we, we should look at what does Jesus say about this? Because if Jesus, if Jesus endorses the Bible, that's kind of the factual way. Because if, if Jesus is God, and I know I haven't established that, and that's a whole other sermon, but, but, but that's where I want to start. If Jesus is God, and he says, hey, you can trust this, then, then that's kind of the factual way. That's the degrees on the wall. That's the, that's, that's the, hey, this has an endorsement by somebody that's important. The experience is secondary. If, if it's endorsed by him, then man, that's something I'm, I'm going to listen to. And here's why we're going to start with that. Because if you're a Christian, then you say, I, I worship Jesus. I follow Jesus. Jesus is the most important my li- person in my life. If you're a Christian, that's what you say. So then we should go, okay, well, what did Jesus think about the Bible? And if you're not a Christian, rather than asking the question, can I trust the Bible? And rather than just digging into all the particulars of the Bible... I think it's really important to just say, what did Jesus think? Because that's the starting point of Christianity to begin with. You're never going to get to going, okay, I, I believe the Bible, and now let me look at Jesus. I mean, the starting point of Christianity is, who, what do I think of Jesus? That's step one. And then step two is, what does he think of the Bible? So if you're not a Christian, my encouragement to you would be just to start with, what does Jesus think? So I'm going to start with a foundation that Jesus is God and that his opinion matters, okay? I'm going to start there. And I, I don't have the, I mean, that, a whole other sermon would be me having to back that up, but I, I just can't do that tonight. So if, if for you that's the issue, great. I mean, that's what, I mean, that's what we try to talk about every week. That's, what, that's why we exist as a church, is to help you to come to know Jesus. But I think we have to start with this question. What did Jesus think about the Bible? Because that's, that's really the beginning point. What did Jesus believe about this book? 
you're not a Christian, I want you to consider Jesus. If you are a Christian, we should ask, what did Jesus think? Either way, it starts with, what did Jesus think about this book? Can we trust this book? Let's, let's see what Jesus said about it, okay? So let's start with the Old Testament. The Old Testament. And here's, the Old Testament is what the Jewish people had as their scriptures. This is before Jesus even came. The Old, the Old Testament, which is the first kind of two-thirds of your Bible, if you have a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, you can have the one in front of you, by the way. Feel free to take that home. The first two-thirds is what's called the Old Testament. And that was what the Jewish people had as their scriptures. That's what they had as their Bible. So Jesus is born into a context, into a community where those people believed this is from God. Okay, that's what they believed. He's born into this context of Judaism where they said, this is from God. This is his word to us. That's what Jesus was born into. Now, Jesus, okay, he's born into this context. He comes, he teaches things, he speaks things. If they were wrong, Jesus could have shown up and said, hey, just so you know, I'm God and you got it wrong. That's not from me. He could have done that, right? And we would have then said, oh, well, I guess we shouldn't really pay attention to that. So what did he do? When Jesus showed up on the scene, when he, when he was born, when he began to teach, when he began to talk to people, what did he say? What did he believe about the Bible that the Jewish people had? And here's some things that Jesus said. This is from the, the book of John, and these are all quotes from Jesus. Jesus says here, Scripture, now remember, he's, he's not talking about the New Testament. He's talking about the Old Testament Scripture, Genesis, Atticus, Ex, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. I promise I know the books of the Bible. Um, and he says, Scripture cannot be broken. So that's one thing he said, which means that it lasts, it endures. It's not something that you can change. It's not something that can be um, undone. It, it stands. It's, this is what it is. Scripture cannot be broken. He says this in a conversation. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That was a way to summarize the Old Testament. Do not think that I've come to abolish them. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota. Anyone have an iota in here? Not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Here's what that means. What he says there is not, he says every single piece of it is important. See, sometimes people say things like, well, it's the ideas that are important, or it's the, the overarching concepts, or it's the stories, or it's the principles, but not necessarily the actual words. But an iota and a dot meant the smallest little parts. It means, it means like the dot on that I and the cross on that T. That's what an iota and a dot is. He says none of it will pass away until it's all accomplished. Here's, here's another thing he says as he's talking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders of Judaism, and, and they, they come up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them, so, so let me back up here. Right here, he's about to quote Genesis. Okay, when he says, have you not read, he's going to quote from the book of Genesis. So he answers them, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let, no man, let not man separate. Now, here, here's why this is important. And this is, this is easy to miss if you don't go back to Genesis of what he's quoting. But here's what Jesus says. He says, haven't you read this scripture? And then what he says is that God said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother. Have you not read that he, that's God, that he who created them from the beginning made them and said, so he's attributing this quote to God. But if you go back and read Genesis, God doesn't say that. The person that says it is the narrator. It's the person writing the book. It's the storyteller. So what we see here, and I mean, these are just a sampling, but what we see here is Jesus attributes the words of the authors of Scripture to God himself. Does that, do, you, do you understand what I'm saying here? When, people, when the authors of the Bible say something, Jesus requotes that and says, God said that. So this is what Jesus' view of the the Bible is. What did Jesus believe about the Bible? He believed it cannot be broken. He believed that every single part of it, all the single words of it, every dotted I and cross T, every part of it, and that that it's actually God speaking, that that when the author of Isaiah says this, or the author of Jeremiah, or the author of Psalms, or the author of Joshua, or Exodus, when those people speak, Jesus says that's God speaking. So what did Jesus believe about the Old Testament? See, he, this, is what, this is what they believed, and this is what Jesus believed. And he could have corrected them. He could have said, no, that's not true. But he showed up and confirmed that and strengthened that even and said, this is God's word. This is from him. So what did Jesus believe about the Old Testament? Okay, but what about the New Testament? Because the New Testament, that, that, that's the books that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, then the letters that are written to the churches. What about those? Because Jesus shows up and says, okay, all the Old Testament, yeah, that's from God. But what about the New Testament? Because that, that was written after Jesus ascended into heaven. That, that was written after he left. What about the New, what, I mean, what do we believe about that? What did Jesus believe about that? And to, to show you that, I'll, I'm going to quote an, an author here. And he'll, um, he'll quote Jesus here. But he, here's what this author says. Jesus says, and now this is in quotes from the Bible, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me, and you will bear witness also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So that's the quote from Jesus. And this author says, again, we can make two important points. First, Jesus exhorts his disciples to bear witness of him. That's to talk about him, to tell about him. This task would, of course, include propagating Christ's teaching, a point he specifically makes in Matthew 28, 19, the so-called Great Commission, and Acts 1, 8. Second, Jesus promises that the disciples would be able to carry out this mission with the aid of God, the Holy Spirit. In the passage above, he is referred to as the Spirit of truth and as the Helper, Clearly, the point is that the Holy Spirit would enable the disciples to remember Christ's teaching and they would be guided by the Holy Spirit in proclaiming it. This is also stated plainly in John 14, 25 through 26, when Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Thus, we have twin facts 
the disciples were to continue the teaching ministry of Christ and they were to do so with the aid of God himself. So here's, here's what this is saying. You, you read Jesus and Jesus says, Old Testament, that's from God. And then there was no New Testament, so Jesus couldn't say New Testament, that's from God. It didn't exist yet. But what Jesus did do is he gathered his followers, he gathered the apostles together and said, I am going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you to teach what I have taught you. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind, to bring to your remembrance, to communicate everything that I've taught to you. And I want you to then go teach that. And I want you to go tell people about me. And I want you to, I want you to go propagate that, as this author says. So the disciples were to continue the teaching ministry of Christ and they were to do so with the aid of God himself, that God himself was going to inspire them to do this. So, how, I mean, that's how we got the New Testament, that then this is what happened. So, I mean, and this is what Jesus says and then this is what the authors themselves of the Bible believed that they were doing. So they, they had heard this commission from Jesus and then as they were writing, this is what they believed they were doing. Here, here's a couple um, examples of some of the, the writers in the New Testament of what they claim about their writings. Here's what uh, Peter says. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul, so Peter now is talking about Paul and Paul wrote a bunch of the, the books that we have in the New Testament. And he says, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. So if you struggle sometimes reading Paul, so did Peter. So you're in good company. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So see, Peter says, you know those letters that Paul's writing, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians and Colossians and Philippians? They're kind of hard to understand, aren't they? Yeah. And a bunch of people read them and then twist them. Nothing's new, right? And then he says, just like all the other scriptures. So, and scripture is a, is a, is a word that I mean, meant on par with God's word. I mean, that's what they believed. Now, here's what Paul says himself. In 1 Thessalonians, one of those letters that Peter would be talking about. We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or in 1 Corinthians, he says this, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, inter interpreting spiritual truths to those who are Spiritual. So he says, we speak these words that have been given to us by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, which is exactly what Jesus said would happen, right? And he says, when we talk to you, when we write to you, this is the word of God. It's not just our words. Whoops. Don't look at that. So Jesus says, Old Testament, words of God. Jesus says, I'm going to gather my followers together and I'm going to send them to go teach you my word. And then the, the authors, as they're writing, they go, yep, that's what's happening. The Holy Spirit, he's empowering us to speak God's word. So that covers the Old Testament and the New Testament. But then a question that some people have, which maybe you had about 10 seconds ago as you saw it on the screen, is this. What about the books left out? Because um, as we saw in that news uh, uh, Good Morning America thing, um, 
Or as you will see, even in the coming weeks on magazines and on TV and on the internet and blogs and all sorts of stuff, as Easter is getting prepped and people want traction to their websites and for you to read their stuff, they'll say things like, we found the gospel of Mary, or we found the gospel of Thomas, or we found the gospel of Philip, or we found the, we look, there's all these lost writings and the church left them out. And if you've seen the Da Vinci Code movie, or if you've read the Da Vinci Code book, I mean, this is kind of the, the theory behind that which is, man, there's all these other writings, there's all these other books, and the church said, nah, we don't want those, we're going to use these ones. So is that true? I mean, what, what about all the other books that were left out? Here's, um, this is from a professor actually at Denver Seminary, who's a worldwide, uh, world-renowned scholar named Craig Blomberg, and here's what he says, in no meaningful sense did these writers, church leaders, or councils suppress Gnostic or apocryphal material. Those are the things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the stuff they were talking about. He says the, the church, the leaders, the councils, they didn't suppress these things. Since there's no evidence of any canon, that's a group of writings, that ever included them, nor that anyone put them forward for canonization, nor that they were known widely enough to have been serious candidates for inclusion had someone put them forward. Here's what he's saying, and I'll keep reading, but here's what he's saying. He's saying there's no evidence that there was all these books that people said, hey, we want these to go forward as part of the Bible. Hey, we want these to be a part of the Bible. And then the church said, no, 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 that's not going to happen. There's no evidence of that. There are a collection of these books that are out there, but there was never, I mean, it's, it's never like there was all these groups of people voting and saying, hey, please include our stuff. Please put our stuff in. And the church said, no, we're not going to do that. It never happened. There's no evidence of that. I mean, ask any historian. I mean, that, that never was something that took place. And, and there was never any canon, which means the lists of the different kind of collections of churches that might have had 10 letters from the New Testament. They never had an additional five letters that included these other books. That never happened. They, were, they weren't even that widely known. Indeed, they would have failed all three of the major criteria used by the early church in selecting which books they were, at times very literally, willing to die for. So he says, there was criteria of why these books got in here, and all those books like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Philip and all those other things, they would have failed all the tests that were used to put those in here. And he says the criteria of apostolicity, which is that a book was written by an apostle, one of Jesus' 12 followers, plus Paul, or a close associate of an apostle. Coherence, not contradicting previously accepted scripture, the Old Testament, and Catholicity, which is widespread acceptance as particularly relevant and normative within all major segments of the early Christian community. So he's saying, look, there was never all these books out there that were vying for competition, and the church just said arbitrarily or for power consolidation, no, we're not going to accept those. That there there was letters that were out there but they either were completely wonky and contradicted earlier scripture of the Old Testament. They were either, I mean, some of them written centuries later, even as you saw in the news clipping that it said this, um, the gospel of uh, Mary, or I can't remember which one it said, the gospel of Jesus' wife, which was written, I mean, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later versus the New Testament writings that we have, which were written within the same century. It was either, I mean, it was, it was never this, this thing that there was all of these writings being proposed forward and the church saying no. It just never happened. 
And, and let me just say this, just in case you go, well, yeah, but what, what about, the, what, I mean, what if there's a bunch of good books out there that, that we don't have that we're missing out on them? You wouldn't want them to be in there even if they should be, just so you know. I mean, even, I mean, let me just give you a couple clips of what's in some of those books, okay? Here's the Gospel of Thomas, which is the most famous one because it's the most complete one that's out there. Here's what, here's what, uh, here's what happens. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. I mean, if I got up and preached that today, how many of you would go, yeah, I'm glad that book's in the Bible. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Jesus, you, you ladies here. And now you know what you need to do. Or, here's another one. But the son of Annas, the scribe, this is when Jesus was a little kid, okay? Here's what happened when Jesus was a child. If you ever wondered, what was his childhood like? Should, should, would our kids want to play with Jesus? Let's see. But the son of Annas, the scribe, was standing there with Joseph, Jesus' dad, and he took a branch of a willow. So this is this little kid coming up to Jesus. He took a branch of a willow and with it dispersed the water which Jesus had gathered together. So this kid knocks over Jesus' water. When Jesus saw what he had done, he was enraged and said to him, you insolent, godless dunderhead. <laughs> I love that. What harm? I mean, if you call someone a dunderhead, just remember, what would Jesus do, right? I mean, he would call him a dunderhead. What harm did the pools and the water do to you? See, now you shall wither like a tree and shall bear neither leaves nor root nor fruit. And immediately that lad withered up completely and Jesus departed and went into Joseph's house. So Jesus kills the dude. He withered, I mean, so aren't we so sad that we've missed out on these lost gospels? So um, here's our next question. Do we have what they actually wrote? Do we have, so, I mean, we can say that Jesus said, so Jesus says, Old Testament, God's word. Jesus says, New Testament, I'm commissioning these apostles to spread my teaching. And those writers say, this is from God. That's, that's what happens. So how do we know that we actually have what they wrote? So even if that's true, even if Jesus said that he sends out these apostles to write, how do we know that we actually have what those people wrote down? Because it's been a long time and we don't have, no matter what museum you go to or no matter what library you go to, we don't have any of the actual pieces of paper that Peter or Paul wrote on. We don't have any of those. So how do we know we actually have what they wrote then? How do, how do we know that it hasn't just kind of over time we've lost what they actually have put down on paper? I mean, that's an important question. How do we know that we actually have what they wrote? And here's, here's a little chart that I'll show to you. You might not be able to see it. Maybe you can if you're in the front row. Congratulations to all the other dunderheads. And if you can't see it, then we'll just, I'm sorry. I'm just being like Jesus. Okay, here we go. So this is just um, historically, historically, here's, here's what's true. On this column are various authors throughout history. So Caesar, Livy, Tacitus, I uh, can't say that guy's name, Herodotus, um, can't say his name, his name, Homer. So some of these you've heard of or read in school, okay? And Here's the dates they were written, 1st century B.C., uh, 5th century B.C., etc., 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 okay? Caesar's writings were written in the 1st century B.C. The earliest copy we have is from 900 A.D. The number of copies 
10. Okay, now here's why this is important. Caesar is somebody that we look at and we go, okay, Caesar wrote this stuff down and historians believe that what he wrote down was true. Okay? Um, same thing with Tacitus. They, they look at his writings and they say, we, th- these are all historians and they go, okay, we know that this is true. His, I mean, this is not, I'm not talking about Christians, I'm talking about historians. That they look at this and they go, we know that this is historically true. But you get down to the New Testament, and let's just compare these. So uh, Caesar's number of copies of what Caesar wrote, 10. Number of copies of the New Testament, 5,000. Now, this is a fact that that nobody debates, okay? Christian, atheist, nobody. Go on YouTube, look up. I mean, you can watch people argue about it um, as far as is the Bible trustworthy or not. And nobody will debate these facts, that we have more copies of the Bible than we have of anything else. Anything. That's a fact. So, I mean, by, by huge numbers, and 5,000 is actually conservative. A lot of people will say 25,000 because they're talking about copies that are written in different languages, but original Greek copies, 5,000. 5,000 versus the most being Homer, not Simpson, uh, 643. Okay? So 643 versus 5,000. That's how many copies we have. Here, here's, I mean, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this more, but here's what we're saying. How do we actually know we have what they wrote? Well, nobody has hardly any of the, I mean, I don't, from this time period, we don't have any of the writings of somebody actually putting it down on a piece of paper. We don't have those, but we have copies of those. So the way that you test and see, well, how do we know we have the original well, you look at all the different copies that are out there and go, how do they compare to one another? Because if you have this copy and it's way different from this copy and this copy's way different from this copy, then you know that people are just kind of adding stuff and messing with stuff. But if you have 5,000 copies and they all match up, then you know, oh, okay, that must be what the original was. Does that make sense? So with the Bible, you have 5,000 copies. So that means you have a lot of data to base it on. Second thing is this, though. If you look at um, any of these, so we'll take Caesar. It was written in the first century B.C., okay? So it was written in the first century. The earliest copy that we have, though, is from the year 900, okay? So that's, that's about 1,000 years. So Caesar sat down and wrote something. The first copy we have of all the different copies. The first one is all the way over here, thousand years later. Okay, what about the New Testament? Well, it was written in the first century, just like Caesar, okay, between 50 and 100 AD, or Caesar, sorry, was a century before, um, first century BC. So, earliest copy, second century. So, that's, I mean, the gap between a thousand years versus a gap between 30 years, between maybe at the most uh, 80 years of the earliest copy. I mean, that's significant. So we're just talking about accuracy. Then the accuracy of the copies, which is when you line up all the copies, how much do they actually match? The New Testament, 99 plus percentage with a one over it, whatever that means. If someone's a mathematician, you can let me know. But 99%, okay? 99%. That's amazing. 
That means when you take all the different copies that are out there and you compare them, that there's 99% similarity, 99% accuracy. So what about that 1%? What about that 1%? Is, is it things like this, this one says Jesus is God and this one says Jesus is not God? No. That 1% of the differences is usually a spelling error because you've got these people writing down by hand stuff. It's usually a spelling error or a spelling omission. So they were supposed to write, um, you know, thanks, T-H-A-N-K-S, and instead they put T-H-X or something. They were texting, you know, back then. So they, they, they have spelling omissions or they accidentally add a word. That, that's, I mean, percentage-wise of that 1%, that's the majority. Then you've got a, a couple other things that would be a little bit more significant that if you've got a Bible, um, depending on your Bible, but most Bibles will have notes in the bottom that will say the earliest manuscripts don't have this. So the earliest manuscripts don't have this, which means this. It means that, I mean, as things were getting copied down, maybe a scribe, the person copying, kind of wrote down like in his journal, oh man, this, this really makes me think of this, or maybe he had heard a story and he puts it in there. But then when people copied that and they copied that and they copied that, then it just kind of got looped in. But that's not something that Bible scholars don't know. That's why your Bibles will say that. So just so you know, like John 8, I believe it's John 8, um, that talks about the woman caught in adultery. Many of you have probably heard this story where Jesus says, go and sin no more. If you have a Bible, that will say on there, that's not in the earliest manuscripts. So you, no one's trying to hide that from you. No one's trying to keep that a secret from you. It's saying that somehow along the way, and there's only a couple like that, by the way, again, when we're talking about that 1%. And they're not hidden. And even if, again, you go on YouTube or you watch debates or whatever, you read or you don't want to go on YouTube, you want to read scholarly stuff. None of those things, none of them make any difference in the core doctrines of Christianity. None of them. None of them say, I mean, none of them are saying like, God is fake and God is real, or Jesus is actually dead and never rose from the dead, and Jesus did. For, I mean, none of them, none of them make any significant point. Even the, even the most uh, ardent skeptics agree with that. Bart Ehrman is probably the most famous, well, um, kind of published guy that, that likes to make a big deal about this 1%, and he would say the same thing. He would say, yeah, none of them actually make any sort of theological difference in what Christianity holds to. So, so th this is the question of, do we have what they actually wrote down? I think so. I mean, I think that historically we have at least, the if, if we can't trust that we have what these authors wrote down, we can't trust any early history of what the authors wrote down. And yet we do. I mean, what people, his historians believe, yeah, we have what they wrote down based on the historical criteria of this stuff here. Now, maybe it's just all made up, right? I mean, we could say, hey, we've got copies. We've got, a, we've, we've got what they actually wrote down, but they were just making stuff up. So, I mean, that's something that could be something you might believe, um, and we don't have time to talk about that, other than that to say we'll talk about that a little bit on Easter, of that clearly uh, the way that the Bible writers wanted to be presented was that they were writing things that were based on eyewitness accounts. But you'll have to come back for Easter to talk about that, okay? Okay. Um, so here's then the next, the next question. The first witness of is the Bible trustworthy is 
What did Jesus think about it? Is this book trustworthy? What did Jesus think about it? Well, he said the Old Testament was God. He said that the New Testament he commissioned to be written. The authors believe the same thing. We have what they wrote. Okay, so that's the first witness. The second thing, though, to think about is, does it seem like it's from God? That's the second criteria. What I mean by that is, is when you read this book, is it what you would expect would happen if you were hearing God's word? See, this is, this is kind of the, I think this is actually even more important than the first. Um, for us. Here's why I think that. I think that because a lot of times we make our decisions based on experience. And I'm not saying that that's good or what we should do, because I think that can lead us astray many times. But that's just reality, that a lot of times we make a decision based on experience. So kind of back to the, the, the counselor example. If you go into counseling and you're sitting down with somebody and you're getting great counseling and you're like, man, this is changing me. This is amazing. And then somebody goes up to you and says, hey, guess, did you know that they're a fraud? We just found this out. All their degrees are fake. And the person that they said endorsed them, they lied about that. And this, you know, they don't even work here. They just somehow set up, they just set up shop here. I don't even know how they got in here. You would probably say, I don't care. It's working. My marriage is being changed. I'm not addicted anymore. I mean, whatever it is. Because your experience is authenticating that you trust this person as a counselor. Or vice versa, if you went into that counselor and, um, it was not helpful at all. And you said, you seem ridiculous. You don't know anything. And the guy said, yeah, but look at all my degrees and look at my recommendation letters. And somebody goes up to you and says, actually, this guy was just voted number one counselor in the world. And you say, I don't care. I'm divorced now because of him. I mean, you don't care. See, our experience is oftentimes why we actually make decisions. And that's just true. Again, whether it's whether... Whether that's good or bad is not my point. My point is just our experience is often why we make decisions. So when you come to this book, what would you expect it would be like if it was from God? If this was God speaking like Jesus said it is, what, what would you expect it would be like? What kind of experience would you expect? And so here's, here's where I'll just describe my experience because I believe that I believe it's important to say, experientially, does it seem like it's from God? Does it seem like it's from him? And I'll, I'll say personally, I know that I grew up in a Christian family. I grew up in a Christian home. I read the Bible a lot as a kid, um, you know, Bible verses and Sunday school and all this. But going into college, probably like many, many of you, um, begin to think about, man, I heard a lot of this stuff about the gospel of Thomas and all these things and started thinking, man, what if maybe this isn't true? And actually came to think, you know, I, don't, I think some of this is maybe good and some of it's maybe bad and some of it's from God and some of it's not from God and kind of started to settle there. And then through just reading a lot of the types of things that we just talked about and through studying and through, and through actually then reading this book more in depth, and spending more time actually reading and seeing, some, there, there was change that took place. 
there's change that took place in me internally that as I read, something happened where I began to see, here's who God is. Here, here's who God is. And my vision of just who Jesus is and who God is began to grow and expand and began to see things I'd never seen before. And begin, that actually began to lead me, along with studying other things, but that began to lead me to say, no, wait a minute. This seems like it's from God. Because as I read this, there's something changing inside of me, which is what you would expect if, if it was from God, right? Again, I'm not saying that experience is everything, but I think it's an important witness Second thing, that as you read the Bible, I think there's unmatched wisdom in it, which is what you would expect if it's from God. I, mean, I think that all of us, we sense that we have a need for wisdom outside of ourselves, right? That's why we read books, or it's why we talk to friends and get counsel, or it's why we, I mean, we all sense that we don't have it all together and we need some sort of wisdom from the outside to help us. When you read the Bible, I think there is wisdom that you find there that is unmatched anywhere else. I think there's wisdom that you see here that's unmatched anywhere else. I mean, just as a small example, something like Jesus says, hey, before you go and talk to somebody that you have a problem with, get the, get the log out of your own eye, which means check yourself first, before you go get the speck out of their eye. I mean, that's just smart, Right? Now, it's not like you can't find that anywhere else, but there are things in the Bible that, exp that are beyond just practical wisdom, things that just explain life. Like what's, I mean, everybody thinks there's a problem. We all, we all look at the world and think there's a problem, right? Something's wrong. Do we need more education? Do we need more politics? Do we need more programs? What, I mean, what's, what's the problem out there? More medicine? I mean, what's, what is the issue? I think when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about our hearts craving other things to be in the place of God and that then leading to identity distortion, that explains to me life better than anything else. I mean, so you, you can get wisdom from other places, but what you would expect to find if this was a book from God, this is what you would expect to find as you read this, if it's from God, is that it would explain life better than anything else. Because if it's from God, I mean, it would have to. That other things would have bits and pieces of wisdom, that other things would have truth in them, but they would always come up a little bit short. That they would never quite be able to explain everything. But you, what you would expect, if this is a book from God, is that it would explain life. And I've, I've seen that to be true in my life and as, as a pastor, as I've talked with people and helped people, that, that this book explains life better than anything else. Third thing, does it seem like it's from God, is, is this. When I read the Bible, and maybe you've felt this too, it sounds like what the voice of God would sound like if he was talking. And here, here's what I mean. Sometimes I read the Bible, and I'm comforted. Sometimes I read the Bible, and I feel like, man, God's just, he's giving rest to my soul right now. Sometimes I read the Bible, and I'm, and I'm motivated, I'm inspired, like, come on, let's go take over the world for Jesus. Let's go get those dunderheads. You know, sometimes I'm inspired. And sometimes I'm sad. And I feel like, man, the world's a broken place. 
And sometimes I'm really encouraged, like, man, God's with me and he cares for me. And sometimes, sometimes I'm corrected. Sometimes I read and, I, and, and God says, don't do this and I want to do this. Or God says, this is not part of life in my kingdom. And I, and I say, ah, but I want that to be life in my kingdom. And I'm corrected, which, I mean, a lot of times people come to the Bible and we read it and we go, I don't like that part, so it must not be true. But, I mean, if it was a book from God, we would expect that as we read it, that as we, if, if what Jesus says is true and as we read it, we hear his voice, we would expect that if we were hearing God's word to us, the whole emotional range of our experience would be at work, would it not? I mean, so you've got friends, right? I hope. And if you go talk to your, if you go talk to one of your friends, you've, well, here's what I'm saying. You've got different kinds of friends, right? You've got different kinds of friends. So there's probably, when, when, you're, um, when you're sad, you probably don't call all the friends you have. There's probably a couple or maybe one friend that you really like to call when you're sad. And if you want to get jazzed up and someone help you keep your goals or something, there's probably another friend you call. It's not always the same person. But if you want someone in your life to kind of tell you, hey, this is wrong, you need to stop it's probably another friend you call, or maybe it's not even a friend. Maybe it's a pastor or a counselor or a coach or someone else that you want to kind of be an authority voice to tell you stop. I mean, we don't usually have one person that fulfills all of that for us. But if this was actually the voice of God, we would expect that it would speak to the whole range of human experience, that God would be able to provide comfort and counsel and teaching and correction and motivation and, and, I mean, just all of it. That if it was actually the voice of God, it wouldn't be simplistic. It would connect at every part of our hearts. And I find that to be true. And those that have spent much time reading this book have found that to be true. I mean, if, if I was actually having a conversation with God over the course of my life, I would expect that it would be like this. I would expect that there would be parts of my life that he would say I need to change. I'd expect that there would be parts of my life that he would encourage me, that he'd comfort me. And that's, that's what I would expect if I was sitting down and talking with God. Third, one, two, three, fourth, fourth thing is the gospel. The gospel, which is that man cannot save himself, but needs God to come down and save him, no other religion teaches anything like that. And so if I, as I've just studied religion or as I've just talked to people about their ideas about life and how we live, that idea of grace, which is that God, not, not based on anything that we've earned or deserved, says, I'm going to save you and bring you into my family. I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago that it's, not good people that get into heaven. It's not good people that have a relationship with God. It's not good people that have access to God. It's actually bad people. It's the only religion in the world that teaches bad people get to heaven, not good people. Because the bad people say, I need you. I'm bad. I need a savior. I need someone to save me. It's the only thing in the world, human philosophy or system or religion that teaches anything like that, which means to me, it's either absurd and the authors were wacko, or maybe just possibly it's an idea that humans would never come up with. 
because it says that the power is outside of ourselves. Everything else says the power is within. You can be good, you can earn it, which is what we would expect humans would come up with. But if there was a God, I mean, it seems, it seems like the kind of idea he would come up with. And then finally, is Jesus himself. Like when I read the Bible and I see Jesus, there's no one else like him. If you read the Bible and you, and you pick it up and you read and you see who Jesus is, there is nobody that's ever even been invented as a character in literature or movies that is like him. Nobody. There is no, I mean, he's always surprising. He is humble and yet confident. He is strong and yet tender. He is courageous and bold and angry and yet sorrowful and compassionate. There's no one ever like Jesus. And so when I read the Bible and I go, man, if, if, if there was a God, what would he be like? I mean, I see Jesus and my heart is just compelled to this character and go, there's just something about him. I mean, so, you know, when Jesus is going to, when he's uh, captured, about to be captured, to be crucified, Peter, his you know, close friend, the guy that doesn't understand Paul's letters, he pulls out his sword and he chops off one of the guy's ears. Now, if I was Jesus, and I was about to, I mean, these guys are kidnapping me, they're going to take me to the cross, they're going to beat me, and Peter chops off the guy's ear, because he's a bad swordsman, apparently, I would think, okay, that wasn't right, Peter, that wasn't right, but it happened, so let's just move on, right? I mean, like, hey, we got like a half a point for our team, now let's just move on. That's what I would have done. But Jesus, to his kidnapper, picks up the guy's ear, puts it back on him. I mean, that's just different, right? Or, or um, right right before Jesus' uh, his last meal with his disciples, and he, um, it, it says, the author says, that Jesus knew where he was from, meaning he knew he was God, and he knew where he was going, meaning he's going back to heaven, he's gonna reign in eternal authority, he's the king of kings. It says, he knew where he had come from, he knew where he was going, and with that knowledge, you know what he did? It says he got down, and wash the disciples' feet. So, I mean, in the moments, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you, but in any moment where you felt like I'm on top of the world, maybe you just won some prize, or maybe you uh, just got promoted, or some, something where you felt like as self-confident as you've ever felt, and is just, oh, man, I know my destiny, I'm awesome, here we go. What you probably didn't do was get down and wash someone's feet probably wanted someone to celebrate with you, to cheers to your awesomeness. You probably posted something on Facebook with your degree. You probably, it was more self-congratulation when you knew how awesome you were. Jesus, when in this moment he realizes how much he is the king, gets down and washes the feet of his disciples. So, I mean, I could go on and on and on, but I'm just saying that when I read the Bible, there's something where I read and I go, this guy, 
he just hits my heart in a way that if, if, if he was God, it would seem like that's what it would be like. That, so here's what I think. Either the authors of, of the Bible were these amazing geniuses and there's never been anyone like them ever because either before them or after them where they were able to come up with this character or it's from God. And it's testifying to this is God. This is from me. So, finally, is what does it mean that we have this book then? And what I would just say is what it means is that God wants a relationship with you. I mean, so can we trust this book? Jesus says he does. And he commissioned it to be written. And when we come to it, it is what we would expect if it was from God. And so what does it mean that we have it? What it means is if this is a book that is, Jesus, in Jesus' words, is from the mouth of God, that means God says, I want to talk with you. I want to, sh- I, want, I want to help you. I want you to know me. I want to guide you. I want to lead you. I want to be a part of your life and speak into your life. So that, I mean, some of the things I even said, so I can correct you and so I can comfort you and so I can encourage you and so I can help you to see me and and to know me. I mean, the fact that we have this book is not just the question, can I trust the Bible? But it's the question, I can trust God. And that's that's why he gives us this book is because he wants to say, "Here's, here's me, here's who I am. And here's how I want to be a part of your life. So, I mean, what does it mean that we have, I mean, yeah, can we trust the book? I think the answer is yes, but, but what I think more importantly is what does it mean that we have the book? And what it means is that God wants to be in your life. I mean, you think about that. God wants to be a part of your life in every way, in every way. He wants to be a part of your life, and so he is spoken to us. I mean, this is basically, I mean, it's even the same color. It's basically a cell phone. It's a, you know, this is basically an iPhone that God is saying, I want to talk with you. I want to talk with you and help you and love you and teach you and show you more of who I am. I mean, that we have that means he wants to be a part of our life. And when we take communion, we remember the same thing the great extent that he went to to be a part of our life, which is that God came down to this earth as Jesus. And he went to the cross and was crucified, which is that he died the death that we should have died for our rejecting that relationship with him. And then he rose from the dead and says, come have life with me. When we take communion, we remember that his blood was shed and his body was broken so that we could have relationship with him, so that we could know him and so that he could be involved in our life. All the things that the Bible testifies to, communion is when we remember that that's true, that this is the extent he went to give us relationship with himself. And so if you're a Christian, my encouragement to you during this time would be to remember how much God wants to be a part of your life. I just want you to think about that. How much God wants to be a part of your life. 
And when you take communion, confess if there's parts that you've cut him out of, if there's parts where you said, I don't really want to talk with you, I don't really want you to be involved. But then rejoice and remember how good he is that he would want to be a part of our life. And then we sing songs because we believe that, man, how good is he that he would want us in his family. And we give tithes and offerings. And if you're not a Christian, don't give. But, but here's why we give. We give because we want to have a place where people can hear from God, where they can be a part of a community, where they can know this good God that has given us his word because he's given us relationship. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you. Thank you that um, you want to be involved in our lives. You've gone to great lengths in that, in sending your son to us. You've gone to great lengths in that, in uh, going to the cross for us. That you want to be a part of our life. God, I know that many of us resist that at different levels. There's this great gift that you want to be a part of our life and that you want to speak into our life. And then so many times we resist that or don't think we need you or think we can get on by ourselves. But God, I thank you that that is just false. It's not true. We can't get on by ourselves. And though we think often we're doing good by resisting you, God, we know it's not true. And so help us. Help us to... um, to receive from you your word, to listen to you, to invite you in to the life that you've given to us. And let us sing and worship and know how good you are, God, that you would call us into your family. In your name, amen.